Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Hey, I'm Jeff Cohen. Everything you hear on WNPR, from local news and talk shows to the national programs you love, is made possible because of listener support. You make it happen. You give the radio its signal, the computer its stream, the smartphone its podcast. You make it so we can reach you wherever you are. We love that you listen, but we also need your dollars. Go to WNPR.org and click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for helping out. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This headline in the New York Times may have startled you earlier this month. Close to half of all American adults have genital HPV, or human papillomavirus. That's according to the National Center for Health Statistics. The CDC says HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection in the U.S. Today, we find out more about HPV and whether a push that started 10 years ago to vaccinate adolescents against certain strains of the virus has worked. Coming up, we'll also hear how the U.S. may have something to learn from China's approach to sex ed. But first, HPV. Did you know how common the virus is? As a parent, do you have questions about whether your daughter or son should get the HPV vaccine? We want to hear from you. The number, 860-275-7266. You can email wherewelive at wmpr.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, joining me first in studio is Dr. Linda Matonis. She's Chief of, Obst- of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Hospital of Central Connecticut in New Britain. Dr. Matonis, welcome to the show. Thank you. When we saw the story in the Times earlier this month, a lot of us were surprised. We were talking about it in the newsroom. Um, so we wanted to, to talk to medical professionals about something that you know more about than we do, and that's HPV. Tell us exactly what it is. HPV is a virus. There's actually about 100 strains of HPV virus. It lives on the skin, and um, about 40 of those strains are transmitted through the genital tract, so sexually transmitted. Um, There are low-risk and high-risk strains of HPV, so generally we don't worry too much about the low-risk strains. It's the high-risk strains that we worry about which can cause things like cancers. Now, you said that it's a virus that's on the skin. So when we're talking about a sexually transmitted infection, if someone uses a condom, does that mean they're safe? Actually, no. It is a skin-to-skin transmission, so um, condoms tend to protect against Uh, things that live in the body fluids, but not necessarily protecting you against skin-to-skin transmission. And so when we heard the study that was done by the National Center for Health Statistics, more than 40% of American adults are infected with genital HPV. This isn't surprising to people in the medical community. What surprises me is how low that stated number is. I would say it's closer to uh, 80 to 90, almost 100% of sexually active people have been exposed to HPV. So at, at any point, we would most people will have gotten this virus, but our bodies, most of us will, will work it out? Yes. So um, HPV is um, generally cleared mm-hmm. within two years of exposure. So it's very prevalent in the teenage and young adult 
um, population. And then as you age, it's cleared. So it is uh, kind of a competition between how aggressive the virus is and how competent your immune system is. Generally speaking, the immune system takes care of it and it doesn't bother you. And how long um, have medical professionals known about HPV since we're talking about STIs and STDs today? Well, it, we've known about it for a long time. It's been known to be associated with cervical cancer. Um, about 10 years ago, in 2008, a vaccine was developed, and that really um, triggered a lot of public awareness because in order to uh, agree to the vaccine, people wanted to know about what they were agreeing to. But we've known about it far, uh, for a, a lot longer than that. And we're going to talk about the vaccine and also vaccination rates among young people in just a little bit. But you mentioned Dr. Linda Matonis again. She's chief of obstetrics and gynecology at the Hospital of Central Connecticut in Connecticut. Um, you mentioned, uh, Dr. Matonis, that uh, some of these strains are very serious and can lead to cancer. Tell us about those cancers. Um, so about uh, 70 percent of cervical cancer is related to HPV type 16 and 18. So um, there are, as I said, about 100 different strains of HPV. They're divided into low-risk and high-risk strains. So um, low-risk HPV, you may not ever know you have. Uh, we don't really test for it. Um, the low-risk HPV strains may cause genital warts, um, which won't kill you, although they're very unpleasant. Um, the high-risk strains are the ones that we worry about for causing cancers. So the one that's often talked about is cervical cancer. Um, but HPV can cause other cancers. It can cause penile cancer, anal cancer, throat cancer, um, cervical, vaginal, vulvar cancers. And we know because of the vaccine, there has been uh, increased awareness about HPV. But how does the U.S. compare to other countries in terms of prevention the most important thing is early detection. So, um, and that is with pap smear screening programs. Um, so the U.S. is a leader and doing very well in cervical cancer prevention because of the push for pap smear screening. Um, in other countries where um, people either can't afford health care or aren't getting pap smears, we see it. Cervical cancer prevalence much higher. So when you are following the Pap smear guidelines and getting screening, you can catch cervical changes and abnormal cells before they turn into cancer, and then you can prevent it. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about HPV, human papillomavirus. Um, a, a report came out earlier this month uh, from the National Center of Health the Statistics, I believe, uh, related to the CDC, that more than 42% of American adults have this virus, and we wanted to, to learn more about it. In studio with me is Dr. Linda Matonis, Chief of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Hospital of Central Connecticut in New Britain. And if you have questions about HPV, specifically uh, coming up, we're going to talk about the vaccine for HPV and whether maybe you have questions about whether your son or daughter should receive this vaccination. I believe they start encouraging it around 11 and 12 years old. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Dr. Matonis, you mentioned um, the pap smear. Um, for men who have HPV, how do they find out? 
generally men do not know that they carry HPV. Um, they may get genital warts and therefore know that that's caused by a virus, um, but there is no screening program for men. That can be alarming. So women can get the annual pap smear every couple of years, but for men, there's no way to know. And you just mentioned early detection is important. Yes, there really isn't. Um, the rates of cancer among men are much less. So um, the prevalence with HPV-associated cancers really is focused on cervical cancer. So it is the women who are affected more, and therefore the screening with pap smears is effective. But men are, are silent carriers, absolutely. And when we talk about pap smears, how often should women be getting these? I thought that the, the recommendation changed of whether you need to get it every year, depending on your age. That's correct. Um, you still should be getting annual exams, but the pap smear itself is uh, the frequency with which you get one is age dependent. Um, generally in the younger years, we start at age 21, and between 21 and 30, it's every three years if it's negative. And then after age 30, we start testing for um, HPV. That's called co-testing. And um, if it's negative and your cytology is negative, which is how the cells look, that uh, you can get a pap smear every five years. Is that worrisome, though, when we know that HPV can be in your body for a long time and symptoms may not develop, and if you're not getting that pap smear every year? Well, the good thing about cervical cancer is it doesn't go from being normal to cancer in a day or a week or a month. It's a very slow process. So it goes through having cellular change that's considered mild, then it goes to a more moderate change, then severe, and then it becomes cancer. So you have four to six years of progression like that. So if you are negative HPV and negative pap smear, uh, nothing's going to develop in a short period of time. Uh, because you're chief of obstetrics and gynecology, um, how does this virus impact pregnancy, if at all? Um, well, because the age range of people getting pregnant is similar to the higher prevalence of HPV, a lot of people discover that they have HPV on their first on their Pap smear in uh, early pregnancy. Um, unless it's something severe, we really don't do much for treatment during pregnancy. Um, we tend to defer the vaccine until someone is not pregnant, um, and it really should not impact mode of delivery. This is where we live today. We're talking about HPV or human papilloma virus. Now, coming up, we're going to hear more about vaccination efforts. It's been 10 years since an HPV vaccine came on the market to protect young people from, com from contracting deadly strains of this virus. At what rate have girls and boys been vaccinated? Are you a parent who's weighing whether your daughter or son should get the HPV vaccine? What questions do you have? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today we're talking about the most common sexually transmitted infection in the U.S., HPV, or human papillomavirus. A federal report finds 42.5% of American adults have been infected with HPV, and each year 14,000 people will become newly infected. 
Do these numbers surprise you? Are you a parent who has weighed whether to vaccinate your son or daughter against HPV? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. In studio with me is Dr. Linda Matonis. She's Chief of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Hospital of Central Connecticut in New Britain. And joining us now by phone is Dr. Caitlin Hansen. She's Associate Research Scientist and Attending Physician at Yale New Haven Children's Hospital and Yale School of Medicine. She specializes in HPV and pediatric infectious diseases. Dr. Hansen, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you study HPV. What was your reaction to this recent report from the National Center for Health Statistics? Yeah, so similar to Dr. Matonis, um, I think we have an awareness that HPV is a very common infection. Um, I think that this report gives us um, some more up-to-date data on just how common this infection is and um, how it affects both men and women. Let's talk prevention. As I mentioned, I think it's been 10 years since the vaccine uh, to guard against certain strains of HPV came out. Can we talk about how that um, campaign has progressed? Are we seeing young people getting this vaccination? Yeah, so we are seeing young people getting this vaccination, but unfortunately um, not as, as high rates as we would like. Um, the HPV vaccine is really a great opportunity to prevent HPV infection um, before kids are exposed and um, has the potential to eliminate infection and the consequences of HPV infection, as we mentioned, like warts and cancer and precancerous lesions. Tell us more about the vaccine. I, I, I understand there's actually two. And what are the recommendations of when people should be getting this vaccination? Sure. So um, currently right now there's one, um, only one HPV vaccine that's um, currently in use in the United States. Um, it protects against nine different types of HPV. So the vaccine um, contains two strains that um, prevent warts about 90% of genital warts, and then seven other strains that prevent against types of cancer caused by HPV, so about 85 or 90% of cervical cancers and other cancers that are caused by HPV. Um, it's very safe and very effective, and it's recommended to be given routinely to all boys and girls at ages 11 and 12 years. Now, the age, that's because most people 11 and 12 are not sexually active, so it's important to get this vaccine before that happens? Exactly. I mean, as with any vaccine, we um, want to make sure that we prevent people well in advance of any potential exposure. So um, that's certainly one reason. Um, another reason is that at that age, kids are also recommended to get two other adolescent vaccines, so it really becomes a pretty natural time um, to get them all at the same time and make sure that they get everything that they need. But Dr. Hansen, you mentioned earlier that um, the vaccination rates aren't as high as they should be. Why is that? Um, I think there's a lot of a lot of reasons. Um, one thing that we have really come to realize is that um, probably there's a lot of room for improvement in the way that um, clinicians, um, healthcare providers talk about the vaccine and recommend it to um, patients and their families. When we hear that when the, the vaccine began, came out in 2006, there was a lot of, of controversy, the idea that you're going to talk to 11 and 12-year-olds about um, sexual activity. But is that something that necessarily needs to happen at that point when um, the, the, the clinician is advising the parent that this is a vaccination that a, a child should be getting before they become sexually active? Yeah, not necessarily. I think you hit on something that's important, and certainly um, there is 
when talking about a sexually transmitted infection, um, the potential for some discomfort around that conversation. I think the important um, thing about this vaccine is really the potential for preventing cancer. Um, and um, I think discussing it as a cancer prevention vaccine is really the most important thing. Now, some uh, teenagers and some young adults at like 20, 21 are also getting this vaccine. How effective is it then? Yeah, so um, this vaccine, even though it's recommended at age 11, 12, it can be given as early as um, nine years and can be given up to age 26. Um, it's it's still recommended to be given um, if uh, adolescent or young adult hasn't received it earlier um, in adolescence. Um, it's you know, certainly based on whether a person has been exposed to HPV before, but it's still recommended that they get it because um, even if they happen to be exposed to HPV before, it'll still protect them against those types of HPV that they may not have encountered previously. This is where we live today. We're talking about HPV, human papillomavirus. Now, there are about 42% of American adults between the ages of 18 and 59 infected with genital HPV. It's the most common sexually transmitted infection in the U.S. 45% of men have that right now, 40% of women. Um, we wanted to hear from parents today who are thinking about whether they should uh, allow their their young son or daughter to be vaccinated. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Maybe you're a pediatrician. We're curious about how you broach the subject uh, to parents. Uh, and what are some of the questions that parents have about the HPV vaccine? You can also join us at 860-275-7266. Uh, Dr. Hansen, again, is Associate Research Scientist and Attending Physician uh, at both uh, Yale New Haven Children's Hospital and Yale School of Medicine. She specializes in HPV and pediatric infectious diseases. Dr. Hansen, what kind of questions do parents have? Or have you been able to speak with parents who have concerns about HPV vaccine? What do they ask you? Um, I think that they have questions about, um, you know, there are certainly things that parents have questions about. Um, all vaccines, you know, is the vaccine safe? Um, at this point, we know that this vaccine is very safe. Um, there have been no serious side effects associated with it. Um, the side effects of the vaccine are similar to other adolescent vaccines like pain. Um, sometimes teens may feel a little bit faint, um, so it's recommended that they be watched for 15 minutes after the immunization. Um, parents want to um, make sure that it's effective, um, and we, you know, we have no reason to think that this vaccine won't protect um, teens during the time that they would be most at risk for acquiring HPV infections. Those are some of the things I've heard. Now, the dosing recommendation has also changed. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, this is actually something that I think is a uh, change that makes it easier for a lot of people. Um, so really just in the, within the last year, um, there's been a change to the dosing schedule such that younger adolescents, um, teenagers who are under 15 years of age um, now only need to get two doses of HPV vaccine at least six months apart. Um, older adolescents ages 15 and up will still need to get three doses of vaccine, which was um, what was recommended for everybody previously. And within the 10 years that this vaccine has been out, and when we look at uh, the population that's been vaccinated, what have been some of the outcomes? Um, yeah, so we've um, seen um, really good evidence that this vaccine um, is very effective um, in clinical practice um, in, you know, in countries where they have much higher rates of immunization than we do, such as Australia. Um, things like genital warts have been practically eliminated 
um, in a little bit closer to home here in Connecticut, we've already seen um, significant reductions in um, cervical cancer precursor lesions um, among women um, after the introduction of the vaccine. So we, we already see evidence um, of really important impacts. Is that evidence uh, encouraging more pediatricians to be receptive to having the conversation with the parents? I would hope so. I mean, I think the more evidence that we have that um, convinces people that this is something that, that works and is effective, um, hopefully will have that effect. We're getting a few tweets from listeners. Uh, one person writes, uh, vaccinate, you could do a whole show dedicated to debunking vaccination myths and give reasons on why they're so important. Another listener says we should be talking to kids about sex and reproductive health by 11 or 12. From an HIV perspective, uh, primary care physicians are notoriously bad at talking about sexual health. So as I'm um, talking to two doctors, one in studio with us, Dr. Linda Matonis, Chief of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Hospital of Central Connecticut. Um, how can doctors get better about talking about uh, sexual activity and ways to educate young people about it? I'll start with you, Dr. Matonis. Um, I think that is a very important thing, and I think it it can't just be the doctors. It has to be parents at home, and you can't shy away from these sensitive issues. One point I want to make about the vaccine is that it doesn't, a lot of parents think, oh, it gives my teen permission to be promiscuous, mm -hmm. and that isn't true at all. Your, your daughter could be with no one else until she gets married, but that guy could be with one other person who was with several people. So it is a snowball effect that um, we need to educate parents in that way as well. And Dr. Hansen, how can doctors get better about talking about this? Yeah, I think um, I would echo what Dr. Matona said. Um, I think it's, you know, not just physicians, but parents. And I, I think just, you know, having the conversation, just doing it and getting comfortable with it. And there's a push in the beginning to vaccinate daughters. What about um, young boys at 11 and 12? Is that something that's also catching on? Yeah. Um, so it's, as I mentioned, the vaccines recommended for both boys and girls. Um, the recommendation for boys um, for routine immunization with HPV vaccine came a little later than that for girls in 2011. So um, immunization of boys, the rates have lagged behind those of girls. Um, but, you know, as time goes on and with greater awareness that this is a vaccine for boys, too, um, hopefully those rates will pick up as well. This is where we live. We can take your questions about HPV right now at 860-275-7266. Uh, two doctors are with us today in studio, Dr. Linda Matonis, who's chief of obstetrics and gynecology at the Hospital of Central Connecticut, and Dr. Caitlin Hansen uh, with Yale New Haven Children's Hospital and Yale School of Medicine. She specializes in HPV and pediatric infectious diseases. Dr. Matonis, I'll go back to you when we talk about pap smears. If a woman gets an abnormal pap smear, their first thought is, I'm going to get cervical cancer. Tell us what they should be thinking about when they might get that abnormal test result and what it means. So the pap smear is um, graded in severity. Um, the majority of abnormal pap smears will heal on their own. So the, the pap smear is a representation of the cellular change that's occurring. And um, the majority of times, your immune system will take care of it, the cells will heal, and the pap smear will revert back to normal. So what we need to do is follow for progression. So if it's a mildly abnormal pap smear, 
even though the majority of them will get go back to normal, we don't know ahead of time. So we want to make sure that it doesn't progress to something more severe. Um, so we'll often bring them back sooner for additional testing. And uh, Dr. Hansen, because you specialize in HPV, um, we know we learned earlier that there's really no test uh, uh, for a man to find out if he has this this uh, this virus. Um, so, what would you tell people who are hearing about how common it is? Yeah, that's right. That's um, definitely something that um, is hard with HPV is that there's most people who are infected may not know that they're infected, and um, for men, there isn't really any good screening program in place. I think, to me, that really points to the importance of vaccination um, for preventing HPV infection so that it's not something people have to worry about so much. And Dr. Hansen, have you been involved in, in recent studies to look at, um, as we mentioned earlier, about how um, the vaccination rate could go up with better awareness um, and education in the pediatrician's office? Yeah, that's certainly one thing that we're very interested um, in looking at, um, how we can improve the conversation between pediatricians and parents and adolescents about the vaccine. And Dr. Matonis, uh, what kind of questions do you get about HPV from, um, say, adult women who have uh, children who are wondering, is this a vaccine that my, my son or daughter should get? Again, the um, biggest concern the parents have in vaccinating against a, a sexually transmitted infection is um, they don't want to think about their kid doing that and they don't want to give permission. So I would say that you're, it's a, I, I echo Dr. Hansen that it's a cancer prevention vaccine and um, it isn't giving permission for sexual promiscuity. Uh, we have a, a quick call before we go to break. Adrian is calling from Hartford. Adrian, go quickly with your question, please. Hi, I was just wondering, if you already have the genital warts, will the vaccine um, get rid of it or how do you get rid of it? All right, Adrian, a good question. He's wondering if you already have genital warts, can the vaccine help you? Dr. Hansen. So unfortunately, the vaccine um, is only preventative, meaning it can't treat um, the consequences of HPV infection that are already present. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, there is still benefit to getting the vaccine, um, even if somebody already has um, HPV-related um, in clinical disease such as genital warts or um, abnormal pap smears because they'll still get benefit from the other types of HPV that are included in the vaccine. Well, I want to thank Dr. Caitlin Hansen, Associate Research Scientist and Attending Physician at Yale New Haven Children's Hospital and Yale School of Medicine. She specializes in HPV and pediatric infectious diseases. Thank you, Dr. Hansen. Thank you. And Dr. Linda Matonis, who is in studio with me, Chief of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Hospital of Central Connecticut in New Britain. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Now, coming up, naturally, we're going to turn our attention to sex ed. According to Shanghai-based writer Stu Nugent, the U.S. could learn a lot from China, of all places. We're going to find out more in just a few minutes. But first, if you enjoy listening to Where We Live and you appreciate the work here at WNPR each and every day, you can support this show. Here are two of my colleagues who will tell you how, and stay tuned for more about sex ed. That's on Where We Live, coming up after this break. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up Thursday, a plan to consolidate operations within Connecticut's colleges and universities system to save millions has roiled staff and raised questions about how well the schools can respond to the needs of students in their communities. On the next Where We Live, we'll talk about the Board of Regents' decision. We want to hear from you. Join us on Thursday's Where We Live. Now, we know many of you tune into Where We Live on your car radio or stream us live at WMPR.org. If you can't listen live mornings at 9 or evenings at 7, you can subscribe to Where We Live on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any podcast app. Now, earlier in the show, we focused on new data that shows nearly half of American adults have HPV, and 14 million people are newly infected each year, according to the CDC. Yes, one way to avoid sexually transmitted viruses is to abstain, but that got us wondering about sex education today. How do U.S. schools approach sex ed now? Do you remember those awkward videos we had to watch in health class? Do schools even have health class anymore? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'll find out about Connecticut's approach in just a little bit, but our next guest wrote a recent piece in the Huffington Post about China's evolving sex education and how we in the U.S. could learn a thing or two from the country. Despite being authoritarian and its decades-long one-child policy, the good news, at least that has ended. Joining us by Skype is Stu Nugent. He lives in Shanghai. He's the author of that Huffington Post piece, China Just Put Our Sex Education to Shame. Stu, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. How are you? I'm doing well. So you're from the UK, but you're in Shanghai. Tell us about that journey. Oh, it's been quite a strange one. Um, I started my career as a writer aged about 18 or 19 to support my studies, really. And during that time, I also became very interested in human sexuality, sexual politics, that kind of thing. And very quickly, those two kind of unlikely paths kind of converged. And I found myself working uh, in quite a prominent position as a kind of journalist and occasional marketer and that kind of thing. And my interest in the complexity of human sexuality developed and my writing developed and they continued to, to develop together until I was offered a job here in Shanghai about three and a half years ago. So I am kind of in a unique position where I have a background of writing and a background of studying human sexuality, and I'm in a country where that is just beginning to really, really burgeon, and where issues of sexuality are finally, after many, many decades, starting to be addressed more publicly. And it's, Stu, uh, Stu kind why of an is that? Time. Stu, why is that in China? Why is it this, uh, the idea of sexuality and pleasure being embraced in China now? It's a good question. I think it's partly to do with the erosion of the decades-long um, kind of civic suppression. You know, it's a very authoritarian, a very insular country. And in the last two decades or so, it's starting to become more open. And the introduction of the internet and the introduction of uh, access to foreign media has kind of broadened the horizons, especially in big cosmopolitan places like Beijing and Shanghai, my home. So it's, um, it's really a, a number of different things all happening together that has led to a kind of like a sexual renaissance here in China. It's just it's just starting to happen now. How in your face is it? Uh, you write that um, when you go to a convenience store, you'll see condoms and sex toys alongside breath mints and chewing gum. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. That's, that's entirely accurate. There's a uh, any kind of chain convenience store here in Shanghai will have at the counter a series of like um, 
reproductive products and pleasure products all grouped together next to like candy basically and i don't really see that in many other places that i've been in the world mm. so it's in your face in as much as it exists where you exist but it's not like for example advertising isn't very overtly sexual and interactions on the street aren't particularly sexualized and they're so it's it's an interesting dichotomy that there seems to be a very real comfort with sex and sexuality and yet it's not a very sexualized culture. Mm. That is interesting when you compare it to the United States. Uh, we're not a secular uh, culture here, but our advertisements are pretty sexy. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, it's uh, sex sells in America, I guess. <laughs> and you, we wanted to focus in a little bit more on the sex ed education curriculum that's been overhauled. Um, what are you seeing? How is that changing? Okay, yeah, so this is an interesting thing. This popped up on Chinese social media about a month ago where... Almost overnight, this new series of textbooks just appeared in schools um, without much warning, such as the, is the way of things here. Things just kind of change and you accept the changes or you stress about them. So images of these textbooks were being shared, particularly by foreign teachers on Chinese social media, which is an incredibly vibrant and crazy place to exist. Chinese social media, it's, it's got a life of its own. So there was a kind of raised eyebrow i guess culturally to these these new textbooks and the content of them in particular was what was generating so much kind of viral conversation and it turns out having ordered there's a series of 12 books and there's like two per year of schooling beginning at what i think would equate to grade three third grade in the us i think and uh everybody who had access to them was a little bit surprised and in, in the sense that th the content was really good mm. it was strangely good so when these pictures start appearing and being shared uh, amongst the chinese social media users and western users of chinese social media people started to take notice and that's when my attention was drawn to them so got a copy i had a translator sit with me and talk me through it and the nature of the content was starkly more emotional based and starkly more progressive i think than anything that i'd seen to date in the west so we don't have much time, Stu, but give us some um, specific examples. So we're talking about at grade two, uh, children in China are learning about uh, things like um, consent. That's right. So there's a lot of talk naturally about the mechanics and the logistics of sex. But what's interesting is the way that issues of consent are treated in these textbooks where um, it's not there's a lot of emphasis on your own ability to say no to a sexual scenario. There's a lot of uh, focus on accepting other people saying no as well. It's an interesting thing that, again, I haven't seen very often. But the focus is much more on the, the human interaction of sexuality than it is on the mechanical, if I can put it in those terms. And the result is a very interesting kind of like positive step forward a, a real advance in the way that the sex is being communicated about where the the theme and the point is not about the anatomy but more about the emotional gravitas of the undertaking of sexual conduct conduct and also kind of interfacing with other genders and other sexual alignments that's present too so compared to the kind of slightly dodgy uh, psas that we were all exposed to in our own sex education 
this puts the student very much in control of their own ability to consent to or to refuse consent to sex. This is where we live. I'm speaking with Stu Nugent. He's a Shanghai-based uh, communications manager for Lalo, the company, and also author of Huffington Post op-ed, China Just Put Our Sex Education uh, to Shame. Uh, so when we're talking about consent and starting at uh, grade two, where children in China are learning this, um, that's definitely different than what we see in the U.S., Stu. That's correct, yeah. So what happens in the U.S. and the U.K. too, which is obviously where my background is, is that the focus in education tends to be more about um, physical interactions. It's more about the biological processes involved. And what that tends to do, when you kind of remove the humanity from education in that way, when you kind of strip it down to its the bare motions and the bare mechanics of it, it tends to seem by implication an action that is done by one person to another. Okay, so... What I'm t- let's take this specifically, just so I'm not talking in such general generalities. Western sex education seems to be taught in a way that implies sex is done by a man to a woman. Now, this is a, it's, it's, that's a dangerous, I think, or potentially dangerous approach, because what that can lead to, what that does, is it instantly disenfranchises the the woman's role in sexual activity. So instead of being an active participant with a partner. It's an activity that's being done to her by someone. That kind of, that early mentality, when it's installed that early, I think can lead to uh, like feelings of disenfranchisement later in life. Mm. And I think maybe like without without expanding this topic with beyond its natural realms, I think it's very possible to make an argument that that could be a part of the the cause of the gender, the, sorry, the uh, the pay gap, the gender pay gap, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, there's um this kind of a close focus on sexual education at an early age can have hugely beneficial ramifications later. And Stu, I wanted to get some perspective here in Connecticut. Uh, joining us by phone now is Sarah Croucher. She's executive director of NARAL Pro-Choice Connecticut. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. So you're hearing and you, you read Stu's piece. Uh, what do you think about... Um, of this idea of sex education much earlier than what we would see here in the States. I mean, I think it's the high school when kids are learning about uh, their bodies, or junior high school and high school, and this whole idea of consent, we don't hear about that in, in, uh, in elementary and high school. Um, so I guess there's kind of two parts to that. One is that um, right now um, the situation in Connecticut is that most students, um, as far as we're aware, and it's school district dependent, Uh, get one class in middle school and one or two in 10th grade, and they mostly just learn about STDs, AIDS, uh, maybe condom use, um, but it's pretty limited in scope. Uh, Separate to that, effective October 2016, we also had a law that we should be teaching about sexual violence awareness and prevention from elementary school level up. However, that's pretty new legislation, and there's also no teeth to that legislation. Um, We don't really know how schools are doing it at the moment. So, And it's also separated from the health education, so we're not putting those pieces about relationships and sexuality necessarily together. Would you agree with uh, Stu's uh, theory that China just put our sex education to shame? Oh, yeah, definitely. So uh, we know that uh, there's clear research that shows the benefits 
and positive impacts of comprehensive age-appropriate sexual health education. So we know, for instance, that it reduces violence against women and it lowers teen pregnancy rates. Um, studies have really looked at whether comprehensive sexual health education um, encourages people to initiate um, sexual, sexual encounters at an earlier age, and, and that's absolutely not the case. Mm -hmm. So it's something I think that we really should be looking at and promoting and um, applauding. Now, we're hearing from a listener who writes that Connecticut needs comprehensive health education that's affirming to LGBT youth. What is out there, uh, Sarah? Um, so probably the best practice is where we have some schools that specifically work with some of the amazing nonprofits we have in this state. So Planned Parenthood in particular, also the Alliance to End Sexual Violence and the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence all have individual relationships with schools where they go in as organizations to teach about um, sexual health education. And we know obviously that when they're sending in their staff, they're doing a great job. But the problem here is that at the moment, it's very much school and district specific. We don't know that all youth across the state uh, get this kind of education. And right now we have uh, legislation that means that by 2020, a half credit, which really isn't much, of health education will be required for high school graduation. And what we're really worried about is at the moment pending legislation that was gonna remove that requirement. So we're actually in Connecticut about to go backwards. We already have this kind of patchwork where we're really dependent on down to the individual school level what the actual outcomes are and so we would like to make sure that all youth have access to this kind of education. So Connecticut has excellent guidelines but it's up to local districts to decide uh, what's taught in each uh, school. Yes that is correct. And Stu going back to you um, you know you wrote this article for the Huffington Post what's been the reaction? It's been an interesting one it's it's been a very positive reaction to the article everybody seems kind of excited by any kind of advance towards sex education. So the reaction that I've been getting personally and that I've been monitoring online is not so much um, people blaming the US education system. People aren't angry at the US when they read this particular article, but they really applaud any step forward. You know, there's no, there's no uh, finger pointing backwards towards the US system. And, and that's a positive thing because it says, it shows that people are more excited by positive change than they are angry at stagnation. Well, I want to thank Stu Nugent, again, who lives in Shanghai. Rather, He joined us via Skype, communications manager for Lalo, also author of that Huffington Post piece, China Just Put Our Sex Education to Shame. Stu, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. And also Sarah Croucher, executive director of NARAL Pro-Choice Connecticut. Uh, thank you for shedding some light on sex ed in Connecticut. Thank you, Sarah, for your time. Oh, thanks so much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalthathanch. Our show today was produced by Jeff Tyson. If you appreciate the show and all that WNPR does, here are two of my colleagues to remind you how to support the station you listen to. And thanks.